Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth, president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Emily Holdman, Managing Director of Permanent Equity. Permanent Equity is a lower middle market private equity firm based in Columbia, Missouri, where, as her name suggests, they focus on investments for the very long term. Emily is also named as one of the thought leaders and Axial's thought leaders for the lower middle market. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Patrick. It's great to be here. Now, Emily, before we get into permanent equity, you've got a great story there and your approach is really unique. Let's start with you. How did you get to this point in your career? So I am not a banker by trade, uh, never took a finance class. I did study economics and journalism in school and uh, worked in major motion picture publicity straight out of school. And, uh, and that led into a marketing related career. And so um, the, the short story is uh, our founder, Brent Eshore, uh, had a marketing firm and about 12 years ago now, I joined that marketing firm um, to lead their digital division and uh, and sort of grew up through operations um, as a part of the portfolio and then joined the um, joined the firm side of things in 2011. Now, unlike other people were having the full uh, business and, and banking and finance entry, you came in on the other side, which is marketing PR. So yeah. it's been very different. <laughs> It is. Um, And, you know, I focus obviously on acquisitions uh, for the most part and and support lead generation within our portfolio. So I still stick to, you know, kind of everything goes full circle, I believe. So, um, you know, I've done different things in my career that uh, at the time feel really concentrated, but ultimately build upon themselves to serve our our portfolio well over time, I I think, I hope. And so as it relates to, you know, today, obviously in acquisitions, uh, it's a lot about marketing (laughs) and it's a lot about sales. Um, and so I still use the same things that I did, you know, while working in 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 the portfolio. Um, but I think having an operator background for the purposes of the types of acquisitions we do is a better fit than than using spreadsheets. You know, a lot of and you know this, I'm sure, very well. But to the extent that a lot of it is narratively driven to understand how a company has endured over time and uh, how they found their product market fit and how they've come together as a team and those oftentimes are more important than what you can find in the spreadsheet. So um, so we stay pretty focused on that. Let's point our direction over toward permanent equity. And I, I can assume with the name, there's a purpose for it, but I, I like <laughs> learning about a company's history and their culture. And it's usually reflective of, of how they name their firm, unless they name their firm after themselves, which most law firms and insurance firms do. But right. you know, why permanent equity? How did that come about? Yeah. So for a long time, our firm's name was Adventures. So we actually just changed to the name Permanent Equity uh, at the end of 2019. So the name itself is fairly new um, and it is intentional, right? So uh, when you think about Adventures, you know, people were always asking us, what does that mean? You know, what do you stand for? And so branding, right? Marketing related. We we were constantly frustrated with ourselves. Uh, we had found a cheap domain. It was ad 
our roots, if you will, um, and then ventures, which made sense to us. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was the origination story for that. But ultimately, we've always had the same value proposition, which is to invest with no intention of selling. Um, and so if you think about that, obviously, it's tied to durability, it's tied to making a permanent commitment, a long-term commitment uh, to be partners. And, um, you know, within the private equity landscape, that's that's somewhat of a differentiated value proposition. And so we wanted to be explicitly clear about that and endowing the name to do so uh, made a lot of sense. And, uh, and it's, you know, sort of at a broader level, it's becoming a common term, right? So it's, it's our proper name, but the common term of permanent capital uh, or permanent equity um, is becoming more well understood. And so uh, we feel pretty good about, you know, getting to own the name. Tell me why, you know, what's your reason for targeting lower middle market? Give us a little profile of, of that and why. Sure. So, you know, we, we're all operators by background. So the firm is made up of people who have worked in businesses of varying size, well into hundreds of millions of dollars and as small as, you know, kind of $5 million in revenue a year. And, and so for our purposes, we know what that landscape looks like, right? And, uh, and we primarily look to invest in or partner with um, companies that are owned by families, right? Um, because again, when you're investing for the long term, it's a certain style of investing. And so we're looking among founders and entrepreneurs and owners who have operated their businesses the way a family typically does, which means low to no leverage, right? Um, Strong commitment to your team, uh, a commitment to know who you are and to abide by that and not just to appease, you know, stakeholders or or shareholders or investors Um, and and really, you know, stick to uh, what matters most in life, right? So your legacy, your reputation, what people are going to know you for after you're gone. And so when we looked at that landscape, you know, really founders and entrepreneurs have very few answers when they go to sell, right? Or at least you think you do. The the most common being a leveraged buyout uh, from traditional private equity is a complete swap out of model, right? So you're swapping what was, you know, a balance sheet that looked very clean for one that's pretty heavily leveraged, right? Um, And with expectations that are tied to a very different time horizon than you have historically been tied to. Um, And so for us, we think that that answer can work, right? Um, So we don't have, we're not enemies of traditional private equity by any by any stretch but to the extent that we think it's probably bluntly applied we think that there are plenty of opportunities and companies that are best served by a different model and so you know it used to be that you basically could become an ESOP uh, and you're going to have to carry paper for a long time as a seller or you could sell to a strategic and lose your legacy or you could sell in an LBO and so we wanted to do something that we felt like based on our operating background served the businesses, served the teams, and served the sellers in a differentiated way. And, you know, continue to have fun, right? So, um, you know, by being operators by background, like we like to get our hands dirty. <laughs> um, and, and we don't want to step on toes. You know, we, we want people who are leading the businesses to continue to do so if they so choose. But to the extent that we want to be helpful, we like the problems that are faced by companies in kind of that 10 million to $200 million in revenue, you know, landscape, right? You're still trying to prove yourself. You're usually competing against somebody who's significantly larger than you. Um, you've still got to manage resources compared to opportunity pretty closely. And, uh, and you're still facing the challenges of 
prioritizing who you want to be, quote unquote, when you grow up, right? Because that's always, you know, sort of a moving ball. Um, and so we found that, you know, uh, that our backgrounds, our experiences are extremely applicable. The skill sets and relationships that we can use to help those companies through, you know, the various obstacles and opportunities that they have are meaningful and it's, it's fun. So, um, and, you know, we kind of have a saying around here, like, life's too short not to have fun. So to the extent that, you know, we, we enjoy the challenge that we're in, we like that segment of the market. We think the opportunity is there. Well, I think the other thing that happens is when you're a company and you've got size and scale and legacy, whether you're cleanly run or not, you have something to put out in front uh, for other people. You just put numbers or reputation out there if you're smaller, you could be a pristine, clean operation, but you know what? There's you got to separate yourself from others, and in yep. order to do that, you have to have a story. You have to yep. develop a story, and that's one of the things that I like about uh, what you and I discussed earlier is that you look at this and you've got a whole content-based approach on on how you do business, and this it all comes down to story. So talk about that approach because we we'll do that and lead into this other thing that I'm everybody's going to want to hear about called your uh, wonderful work, The Messy Marketplace. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so uh, I'm a journalist by background. Brent, our founder, is a writer. And so, you know, early on in our careers, we're sitting in the middle of Missouri <laughs> and we're saying, how do we compete, right? Um, because nobody is going to care that we're in the middle of Missouri. And so we really thought about how do we best articulate our experience um, and how do we build trust, right? Because for sellers in particular, as well as intermediaries and, and others in the marketplace, the hardest part is just building those relationships, right? And and you want to do business with people you trust, especially in transactions, right? Uh, and so we were trying to figure out how can we do that from Missouri? Obviously, did our fair share of roadshows and uh, ACG meetings and steak dinners and all of that kind of stuff to get to know people and uh, know the landscape and respect it. But we wanted to talk to people in a different way um, and more uh, tied to you know how we have done business in in our companies over time. And so starting in 2011, we started writing quite a lot. And so our intent behind the writing was to basically put ourselves out there and say, you know, you may hate our approach to operating. Uh, you may find us to be brash or, or too, uh, too focused on one thing or another, but to the extent that we, we can be only who we are. Um, and so we'll put it out there and use it as a trust building mechanism and hopefully have something to say that can be helpful, right? So I have a belief tied to, you know, kind of the permanence of what we do that most relationships have to nurture themselves over time. And what we found in, in transactions in particular is most sellers want to passively get to know potential buyers for quite a while, right? You kind of marinate on whether or not you're going to do it, anything, a transaction or or change of change of control, whatever it may be, um, for quite a while. And, and so what we found is the landscape of information available to sellers while they're sort of passively trying to get to know the landscape was la lacking, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Uh, and so we said, you know, let's try and be helpful while putting ourselves out there, differentiating what we can about who we are, um, which was primarily tied to our value proposition and also something fondly known as the no assholes policy. <laughs> um, um, and so those were things that, you know, 
didn't matter where we were from, they stuck with people, right? And they got shared. Uh, and so ultimately what we found is that over time we were able to build our email list um, and you know distribute content both on our site and through other uh, third-party sites just in a way that helped to increase our reach and in a different way than you know through deals that are actively in the marketplace, quote unquote, right? So we're looking for opportunities where owners read uh, you know our annual letter or an essay that we have on risk um, and they'll read it, they'll pass it along to their advisors, they'll sit on it for a year, two years, and then they'll reach out, right? And that's perfectly fine by us. We have the patience to, and, and the ability to do that. And we think that it serves the market in kind of a different way. Um, and so, you know, I think I made the reference to you before, we look at it as like putting hooks in the water, right? So you're fishing and you've got to have the hooks sit for a while. And ultimately you'll see if you're fishing in the right spot or not. But we, we look at it as, you know, it takes quantity over time um, combined with quality because people aren't going to share things that, that they don't find value in. Um, and so we've done our fair amount of experimentation with, you know, length of content, type of content. And what we found is, you know, we published plenty of things that we, uh, we wish we could go back and edit down <laughs> or, or make longer in some cases. But to the extent that it's been a fruitful relationship and has enabled us to get to know a lot of people who, you know, particularly sitting in the middle of Missouri, we probably would have never otherwise encountered. We're proud of that, right? Because even if we never do a transaction with those people, we have goodwill sitting out in the market. And that's, that's proven to be very helpful to us over time. Well, and particularly now, as a result of the pandemic, the whole business development process has been turned on its head. And yeah. there are no longer, you know, dozens and dozens of in-face uh, meetings or, uh, you know, conferences, things like that. Those, those are all gone away. And the savvy firms were those that had thought about doing something like content, getting materials out there, not only about themselves, just in general, as kind of what we have done too. And I don't know if this has come across for you, but it has happened in our experiences at, at Rubicon M&A. Out of the blue, somebody will reach out to us to help them with ensuring their M&A transaction. And we will say in response, thanks a lot. Do you need any more information about us? Is there anything about us that you need to know to make you feel better as we go forward? Then just no, I you know here are three of your content pieces that that we've had, and they're a year old, and mm -hmm. so they do kind of you know they they accumulate interest. I would say just like putting putting some money away in a savings account. And oh yeah, no, the evergreen nature of it is super interesting, right? So we we do something similar with tools that we have on our site. So there's a whole section of our site that's called resources. And within that, we have both the written content, but we also have things like an instant appraisal tool. And it's a risk-adjusted calculator that gives out, you know, evaluation, right? Um, but we have it set up so that it's open source. So you can use the tool and never send it to us, right? Um, and so just for a, for a personal calculation for a seller, or an intermediary looking for a third-party validation on what they're trying to value, it gives them a tool that they can use. And what we found, which is super interesting because we can't see the inputs, right, um, unless they send them to us. And so, but we can see an IP address. And so what you see is, you know, IP addresses that use the tool repeatedly, right? And then all of a sudden that IP address sends us an email. And it's fascinating because it's something that says, again, 
people sit on things for a while, they think about them, they use them, they use them in conversations with other people. And this is how we interact with so many things, but we don't think about it in the M&A landscape because it's so transactional, at least in structure. Um, But, you know, a good judicious owner is going to do their homework, right? Um, And so there's these opportunities to now find those types of tools. And again, you know, to your point, use it as a trust transfer too. If you get enough value out of something that that a firm is putting out there, then you kind of feel like you know them or at least are familiar enough with them that when you have the first conversation, it's not so cold, it's not so sterile, um, which just makes a tremendous difference, especially right now uh, when that first conversation is very likely not in person. I think it's real important to emphasize this, that you are not downloading any of the uh, visitors' information as they go on and utilize your tool, yeah. because that's usually yeah. a way that people are going to hesitate. If they want to fill out a survey or anything. It's like, okay, well, now am I going to get you know, hit up by a salesperson or something? And so Correct. that that is a great way to encourage engagement. And again, this is a long processing decision if you want to sell your business, unless there's you're in, you're in a, a crisis mode, and yep. it takes a while for people to warm up about it, even if they don't necessarily get the information or the outcome that they're expecting when they do the calculator. It comes in a little bit different. (laughs) And so that has them thinking. Well, you know, it's funny. It's funny you say that. We've heard from people who have ultimately contacted us that you know they input the information and as it is in reality, and then they change some inputs to try and understand. Okay, if I work on this, how does it change the calculation? And it's great because it can help people to prioritize. You know, it's it's a useful tool in that sense. Okay. The well, let's, let's talk about uh, the approach you have or, or how how you guys are transacting because I mean, let's not forget the name, the new name now, permanent equity. Okay. Yep. Talk about your hold period. It, it's not indefinite, but it's it's kind of specific. But get into that yep. and why, uh, and and again, how that feeds into how you're going to enhance uh, a company's existence with you when they start working with you. Sure. So to the extent that we, um, we've we always been oriented, like I said before, with investing with no intention of selling. And for you know the first nine years or so of the firm's existence, we were able to do that because we were structured as a family office. All of the capital was coming from one source, and that source was comfortable with you know basically an indefinite hold, undefined. And that transitioned in 2016, 2017, when we had a group of investors that came to us and said, um, you know, under what conditions would you all take outside capital and run under a fund model? And for us, you know, we needed the incentives to be aligned in a way that didn't feel like we were changing our identity. And so, you know, stemming back from what we needed to be true as operators, and then what we had grown to understand as investors, there were certain things that were critically important to us. And and one of them was we never wanted to be forced to do a deal. Um, And so if you think about from a performance standpoint tied to management fees, it's very difficult not to do a deal when everyone is paying you to go do deals. <laughs> and then from the standpoint of, you know, how how things interact and, and how you prioritize post-close, um, we've never made an investment trying to think about exactly what the exit looks like, right? That's not why we're making the investment. And so we wanted something where we felt like when we made the investment, we were never going to then be a forced seller. And so many private equity firms based on their fund structure are forced sellers 
just by the length of the, the term of the, the fund itself. Um, and so those were, you know, two of several key elements that were really important to us to sort of break down and reconstruct in a, in a fashion that felt uh, authentic to us. And so what we ended up landing on is a model where we have a 27-year term, and that term is then potentially extended beyond that period by a vote of the LPs. Um, And so, you know, comparative to a traditional 7- to 10-year fund model, we are very close to triple that amount, right? And then, you know, we have 10 years to invest the capital. We're on our second fund now. Um, And so that fund has, you know, 10 years to invest the capital. So again, we have time. We have time to get to know sellers. We have time to get to know opportunities. And we don't feel like we have to move uh, within the first year and deplete down our fund um, in order to be considered, you know, success uh, for the LPs. I'm sorry, not to interrupt. Sorry, but this just sticks out. Okay, 27 years. I mean, it's is divided by nine three times. I can see that. But as we had where, done, where does it why come from? Seven, <laughs> not twenty-six, not twenty-eight. Why yeah. was that was that somebody's number in high school or something? Uh, no, it was a lawyer's number. <laughs> um, so, uh, so one of the largest investors in the first fund, uh, the original number was 50 years. Um, and so, you know, really thinking about it as being a true generation of capital. And, uh, and that attorney came back and said, you know, um, I've never seen that and I'm not signing my name to anything that has that kind of duration. And so we said, okay, uh, you know, what's the longest you've ever seen? And that's where the 27 comes from. So it's somewhat arbitrary, but to be extent that we have the options for renewal past that period. Um, it's really, again, trying to make sure that if it's in the best interest of the companies and in the best interest of the investors to continue to hold the companies, that we are never going to be a forced seller. And we really like that proposition. But on the other side, uh, so we don't take management fees. Um, and so we're self-sustaining based on you know the portfolio that pre-existed, the fund structures. And so that gave us the ability to make that transition without you know feeling it at a fund level or at a firm level, which was, you know, uh, we feel very fortunate to have had that position. And so we were able to just focus on finding the right opportunities. So the first fund was essentially a thesis fund. It was $50 million. We made four primary investments out of that fund uh, and then raised $300 million in our second fund, which closed at the end of 2019. Um, and so, you know, it was an interesting process, and uh, but mostly from you know, family offices, individual investors, and in the second fund, um, two institutions that have been incredibly supportive and gracious in understanding our model and getting comfortable with the value proposition as it, you know, differentiates itself from traditional private equity, Um, particularly at the institutional level, you can imagine, you know, they're used to a very specific structure that has worked for, you know, a lot of people for a long time. And so being able to think outside the box, we were really fortunate to find the right partners for that. I would think also as a target partner company for permanent equity, and this this is just a personal bias of mine, is your approach on how are you going to improve a company? You bring them in, you're going to grow them, you're going to get them bigger, but there's one direction you go, which which is, again, I say near and dear to my heart, but why don't you talk about because your growth is not on minimizing costs or minimizing expenses or getting efficiencies. You focus yeah. on sales, growing yeah. <laughs> Talk about that, please. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, right, how is a company going to be here in 10 or 20 years? You're not going to cost cut your way to that. And you can't really focus exclusively on just 
putting a bunch of disparate companies together, making a mutation, right, and turning it into a corporate behemoth that then has an EBITDA number that's much larger, so you get a multiple expansion. I get how it works, but for the purposes of longevity, uh, you've then got to work through the mess of what you just put together, right? <laughs> and so for us, we focus a lot more on the systemic health of the organizations. And so as that relates to, you know, where do we look for growth, we're primarily looking for it through growing the opportunity set of the organization. And that can be done in a lot of different ways, you know, in construction that can be tied to bonding capacity in a lot of companies, especially those that are B2C focused, that can be improvement upon the lead generation funnel um, and creating, you know, obviously line extensions and other ways that they can continue to meet market need. But we really look for, you know, uh, that side of the table um, to, to continue to improve both the teams and the incentives that are aligned with, you know, seeing us continue to grow in a systemic way, a systemically healthy way. Um, and we've seen that, you know, bear fruit for us, right? So um, we're really fortunate in the companies that we've been involved in now for, you know, close to a decade. It's, you know, it's kind of the tortoise and the hare <laughs> situation, like slow and steady runs the race. You can, we could have very quickly added on various things to some of the companies, but where they are today has been primarily fueled by organic growth. We've done some, you know, small things to, to make acquisitions and whatnot, but we have have really driven operators and, you know, where we can be really helpful is, you know, focusing on very specific ways of improving lead generation or improving the cost structure around that, not in a way that's focused on cutting costs to your point, but more in a sense of trying to make sure that as much opportunity as exists in the marketplace, we have, you know, sort of the arsenal of tactics to go and, and, and try and go after it. Okay, let's get into one thing. And this is from a prior conversation you had with me with regard to specifically lead generation. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is one of your companies that was stable, things were good. And then COVID hit. And because you had done the work ahead of time to improve lead generation, they were on the precipice of just a boom. That was the sole result. Swimming pools. Swimming pools. Yeah, we're talking swimming about pools. Yeah, we're talking about swimming pools. So um, we are fortunate to be partners in Presidential Pools and Spas, which is based in Arizona. And they're the largest residential swimming pool uh, builder by volume in the country. And so they build, you know, a tremendous amount of pools every year. And they've been around for over 30 years at this point. And so they have just a great reputation within Arizona. But when we got involved, they primarily had most of their leads come from home shows, um, from walking into the building or from calling. Um, and they had a website, but uh, and we we invested in 2015. So this is, you know, kind of five years back, right? And so it was really a question of how are we going to improve their online presence, but also create, you know, sort of tracking mechanisms to make sure that when someone contacted them, we could understand what they ultimately ended up deciding to do as far as, you know, improving their backyard. Um, and that's all tied to addresses in the pool market. So you're able to kind of see how that happens over time. And so we 
built a lead scoring system, built a, uh, a new approach for them in terms of how they spent money in the marketing funnel. And within you know two years, we had dramatically changed uh, the lead funnel as a whole. Um, and that's when predominantly now their leads were coming from online, right? Um, and so that was kind of a flip-flop for them. It had historically been a very small amount of their lead volume and now became the dominant source, which has fringe benefits just around being able to track the information, right? Somebody who walks around your showroom, harder to collect all the information than somebody who submits it through a form and then you can keep track of them from there. But as the, the company has continued to grow, you know, based on a variety of different factors, lead generation not being the only one, but um, where we stood in 2020 is, uh, you know, the company was significantly larger, but still has some critical mass, uh, you know, sort of uh, issues, right? So, you know, capacity constraints around production are very real, especially in construction markets right now with labor constraints, right? Um, and so you can only build so many pools physically as, at a time. And as the pandemic hit last year, you know, it became capacity constrained frankly, um, on both sides of the house. So both in the sales team and for production, it became a metering system. We had to figure out how do you safely have uh, conversations about what you want your backyard to look like, which it, it was an issue, right? Because it's not something that you can do in kind of a remote capacity. A yard has to be measured, right? Um, and you've really got to make sure that you understand the soil composition and all of those things. So it's technical enough that it can't be done. It can be done socially distanced, but you can't do it completely remotely. And then from a production standpoint, you can only build so many pools still. And so we ended up having to gate uh, the lead system. And so, um, you know, it was, we were fortunate enough to have it have advanced the lead funnel system to a point where we had the mechanisms in place to be able to continue to um, make customers, potential customers feel like we cared that they had contacted us, but that they were in somewhat of a waiting room until a salesperson was going to be available to talk with them um, and help them to design their pool. Um, and then from there, they have to get in line for production. And so it was very much... Uh, you know, in, in March, we're all having questions about, is there going to be any demand at all? And by April, it was very clear <laughs> that we were going to need all of those mechanisms in place. And to be quite frank, those mechanisms are, are still in place to varying degrees, um, just depending on what our capacity can hold on to. Um, and we think it'll be another strong year for that team uh, this year as they continue to work through the backlog of people who now recognize that uh, their home was, is more important than it's ever been. And just a great story. It's very, very memorable. How does this track with your profile? T share with me, what's the ideal profile of a target company that permanent equity is looking for? It's not purely just construction. No, no. Um, yeah, so we, we look at a couple of different factors. We are not industry focused um, for a variety of reasons, but to the extent that, you know, we focus on the durability of the value proposition, right? So if you look within an, any given market, what we're focused on are things that, you know, if you're, if you're going to like measure durability versus growth, we're far more interested in durability. Growth matters. We love growth, but to the extent that it, the prioritization is always going to be on durability, which necessitates then what, what we lovingly describe as more boring companies, right? Um, you do what you do, you know what you do, it's well-defined, um, and you've probably been doing it for a while. And uh, so that's sort of the baseline of what we look for. And then a large part of it for us is around teams. 
So we want to understand, again, what are the prioritizations of the sellers? Um, do they want to stay involved in the organization? We have a very different value proposition for people who are looking for a majority recap and a partner um, compared to a, an LBO, right? Because in our model, you would still benefit from distributions because there's no leverage on the company. And so, you know, that's a very different value proposition for them. So we feel like we have a compelling uh, proposition in those uh, situations, dissolutions of partnerships, as well as continuing through a recap. And then from a legacy perspective, for those that are looking for retirement and haven't been satisfied with, you know, more traditional options, there there's very compelling conversations to be had. So um, my favorite story to that end is two aerospace companies, sister companies that we purchased in uh, 2019 um, from a 95-year-old seller. And, and this individual had been approached for years by traditional private equity but she had a team for that had been incredibly loyal to the organization for you know some of them in excess of 40 years wow. and so it was very important to her that the organization continue to maintain its autonomy and identity and that those people would have the jobs that they had been so loyal to through that transition period and for as long as they so choose to stay. And so we we found an incredible match in that and felt like it was uh, mutually just an incredible fit um, because that's a legacy that we're, we intend to honor uh, long-term. And, you know, again, because of our, our actual financial structure of the, the deal as well, that company had no debt. So it was able to work through, uh, you know, a very significant decline last year, um, especially in the, the first half of the year, without having to make major restructuring changes to the organization. Um, and, and that's just a really fortunate position to be in. So what you can't overlook if you know you're listening to this is that you cannot take the human element out of this, you know, for MA. Uh, people right. are are not in MA every day. They look at it as you know, news headlines company A buys company B and they move on. <laughs> yeah, they're just assets to switch around, right? Yeah. It's not complicated. No, it's made up of human beings. Exactly. So you've got <laughs> a group of people choosing to partner with another group of people with yep. the outcome, the, the ideal outcome is one plus one equals five or more. Yep. And, yep. and having the, the needs and being able to settle the fears of the people involved is very, very important. And I, I bring that up just to, you know, as we, we think about uh, fear in there is the amount of risk that's there. This deals aren't done in a vacuum. They don't all win. And yep. what sellers come to find out very painfully sometimes in the surprise is that they are personally liable to their buyer partner financially in the event something post-closing blows up that they didn't anticipate and it's built in within the contract. And that can bring some friction, particularly for somebody who's owned a business for a while and all of a sudden they're not used to selling and now they're going to be personally liable for something that could be out of their control. And that that creates a little bit of tension. And what we're very proud of in the insurance industry is that there's an insurance policy that can insure deals. Now is available for lower middle market deals as low as $15 million in transaction value, where the policy takes the indemnity obligation of the seller, transfers it away to the insurance company so that rather than the seller being liable to the buyer for financial losses the buyer suffers post-closing, that uh, were not accounted for in the reps, the seller reps. If that happens, instead of the buyer coming after the seller, buyer goes to the insurance company. 
And we like that because buyer gets peace of mind knowing that if something bad happens, they're hedged on, on potential losses. Seller gets a clean exit. In most cases, the insurance policy replaces some or all of any withhold or escrow. So there's even a great financial benefit in a component. And to take away the fear for sellers, I would say in our experience, nine times out of the 10, the seller will pay for that insurance policy, some or all of it on behalf of the buyer. So it's taken care of. And the, the type of product I'm talking about is called reps and warranties insurance. And I'm just curious, Emily, good, bad, or indifferent. You're doing these <laughs> NA deals a lot. What experiences have you had with rep and warranty? Yeah, so we uh, we are still pretty old school about reps and warranties. Um, we still go through and draft drafted the, the entire section, um, and we don't use insurance. But to the extent that we can understand where it can be applicable in the marketplace, for us, our diligence process is differentiated enough that it's um, you know we we use diligence as a way to get to know the sellers right um, and so talking through um, both the fundamental reps obviously but also through risk factors that are embedded in the business and making sure we're of mutual understanding as we move forward um, is really critically important to us so you know we 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 still go by it in an old school fashion, but you know the market. I think will continue to see plenty of people using that type of product, particularly uh, those that are focused on very quick closings. <laughs> well, now as we're coming in, we're just at the beginning of 2021. Uh, I do have to underline again that you were named as one of the top 20 thought leaders for 2020 by Axiom. <laughs> for lower middle market M&A. So let's, let's lean on you as the thought leader. What do you see going forward or what trends do you expect to see in 2021, either macro or lower middle market M&A or permanent equity in particular? Sure. Um, I'm not sure that it's as much thought leadership as just a willingness to be opinionated and vocal about it, <laughs> but to the extent that I'll take the the compliment either way, but um, but no, I mean, I think uh, where, where we're sitting now, um, 2020 was slow uh, from a deal opportunity standpoint, um, and we knew it was going to be, we anticipated that, you know, kind of from the spring onward. I will say that it was a very fruitful time for us to just work on building relationships um, and just being there for people who are going through struggles times. You know, that, that time of uncertain, uncertainty is some of the most stressful. And particularly when you're in the driver's seat of a com- company, that is a, uh, a tough position to be in. So we just tried to be there for people, if that makes sense. And so as we move forward, you know, we're seeing some people who, uh, for a variety of reasons, whether, you know, kind of demanded by time and age, or uh, just, you know, kind of thinking through what they want to do next, are coming back to market, we're starting to see a return of deal flow. Um, um, which is positive, and we're we're excited about that. But we are continuing to see people who are sort of, you know, trying to figure out how much of their 2020 outcomes are sustainable long term. Um, and so the narrative build around that, I think, is going to be something that we're going to continue to unpack and understand, probably for the next, you know, two to five years. You know, Patrick, I'm sure you remember, like when we, I got heavily involved in 2011, right, um, in looking at M&A transactions, and so it was kind of on the back end of 2000. 2009. And it was two years later. And by that point, people, you would start to see the narrative story for each organization. And it's like, 
never waste a crisis. There's so many things that we're going to learn over the next couple of years. And from an operator's perspective, um, it's a really good time just to think about the fundamentals of how your business is structured um, and, you know, recognize what you've done well through this period of uncertainty. Um, and I think that, you know, for the market at large and particularly for transactions, it's been a nice reset. Um, it, it, you know, kind of in 2019, I remember being pretty frustrated by the hubris <laughs> of both sellers and, you know, other private equity professionals, just that leverage is, you know, abundantly available and there, there's nothing that's going to derail this economy. And, you know, just sort of all the things that were kind of steamrolling and snowballing um, in a positive direction. And then, you know, we all got a humble pie, right? Like, and us included, but to the extent that I think, you know, people have, um, I have a reminder on on why leverage needs to be judiciously thought through can be helpful in certain situations, but to the extent that it's not an obvious, you know, answer for everything, you know, at least from our perspective, we think that that has been reset to some extent. And then we think that there's going to be, you know, plenty of opportunities for people coming out of this um, to see economic expansion. And, and you know, we're ultimately um, very bullish on the future of, you know, kind of the American economy, North America as a whole. Um, and we think that, you know, for sellers and buyers alike, that landscape is going to be pretty strong. Emily Holman, how can our audience find you? <laughs> um, so I'm fairly easy to get a hold of. Uh, I, my email in particular is all over our site, but it's e at permanentequity.com. And uh, I also uh, tweet quite a bit. So you can find me on Twitter as well. Um, and uh, and don't be a stranger is what I would say. I'm, I'm pretty pretty quick to respond and, and happy to talk through things, even if they're, you know, sort of in infancy in terms of, you know, a deal structure or, or an opportunity. No, you're not hard to find. If I could make a recommendation <laughs> to my audience, go check out permanentequity.com, click on the about tab and you'll scroll down to our home. And then you can click on that and you see all the nice intimate elements of, of the firm, the, the house that they use as their office and all kinds of interesting factoids, real estate prices, top restaurants in and around. <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to increase the profile of Columbia, Missouri. It's a great I, place to I, live. I think it's supposed to be one degree this weekend. So maybe don't come visit us this week, but to the extent that it's usually pretty good. Emily, absolute pleasure having you. Thanks again for joining me today. Thanks so much, Patrick.